for joining us for the Red View, Blue View podcast. I'm Caitlin, and I'm a conservative Republican who occasionally leans libertarian. And I'm Shelley. I'm an independent, progressive and left-leaning with a pinch of fiscal conservatism. We are two friends on opposite sides of the political aisle who share a love for talking about politics, current events, and social issues. We may not often agree, but we always learn from each other's points of view and believe it's important to have informed, civil conversations on issues that matter. Let's get started. This is Caitlin. Thanks for joining us for the Red View, Blue View podcast. Today we are going to host our September lightning round episode. We love lightning rounds because it gives us an opportunity to discuss a variety of issues and stories that have been in the news. Let's get started with our first topic. Shelley, our most recent episode featured a conversation with Andrew Romanoff, Democrat candidate for U.S. Senate. Shameless plug for listeners that we'd love for you to check it out if you haven't already. There's been something from that conversation that's been bothering me, something I'm a little embarrassed about. You and I both used the phrase illegal immigrant multiple times during the first half of the episode, including on my end when I asked Andrew some policy questions regarding things like providing comprehensive health care for illegal immigrants. Andrew made a statement that no human being is illegal and that the term we should be using is undocumented immigrants, because referring to illegal immigrants is offensive to many people, including him. Now, I'm embarrassed because I acquiesced and I changed my language for the rest of the episode to say undocumented instead of illegal. My motives were well-intentioned, of course, I wanted to be polite, but I'm pretty disappointed in myself that I didn't push back on his request for me to change my use of the word illegal simply because it offended him. And since then, it's had me thinking about the concept of not offending others with language. I'm interested to know from you if you think that people on either side of the aisle have a right to not be offended by someone else's language and therefore request what language is used. I am not easily offended by use of language and and you and I have not in in our podcast had a lot of debates in terms of what what language to use. I'm not terribly politically correct even though I am a progressive and a lot of the debates on language I find to be boring and I'm not as interested in semantics as the topics themselves and and getting down to what really matters. Andrew's comment though was interesting. There are two reasons that people use the word illegal when describing immigrants. One is that one of the reasons that people are deported or found to have immigration violations or criminal records as immigrants is because it is a crime to cross the border illegally or a crime to enter the United States illegally or to exist here without status. And so just the very nature of someone being here makes them, quote, illegal. And then the second reason that people use the word illegal is because they're undocumented and they don't have they don't have status. So the problem with using the word illegal is, in my view, that because of the first category, I agree with Andrew that it's not right to describe someone as illegal or it's not right to criminalize. That's what Elizabeth Warren is saying now. She wants to decriminalize the act of being here so that that's not what gives you a criminal record. And you and I have talked about immigration before. You know that I think that if if conservatives want to address immigration, that they should focus on the employers. And if you cut the uh, supply of jobs, people would stop coming. And I hate that the focus is so much on the immigrants themselves. Uh, I think that vilifies them and causes discrimination and is unfair to the immigrants themselves. Um, I'll probably, having having been educated by him on that topic, I'll probably try to use the word undocumented more because, like I say, I think the act of existing here uh, shouldn't be illegal. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on the perspective that I am also not necessarily easily offended by language. I disagree with you that using the, the phrase or the word illegal or illegal immigrant, which is used to explain the fact exactly what you just said, someone has entered into our country illegally. They have not gone through the proper legal channels. I don't personally find that inherently offensive. It's not intended to be used in a derogatory manner. Um, it's not something that I will change my language about. I, the bigger question for me and we can use the phrase illegal immigrant, we can use um, defining gun legislation as gun control versus gun safety. I think there's lots of interesting elements around language, particularly in the political sphere, that I think both you and I would agree left and right massage that language to help their narrative, to help their storytelling. 
But I think what I got caught up on with Andrew, and I'm not trying to pick on Andrew specifically, certainly he has every right to feel that way and express himself. What I don't like, though, is the kind of the moral superiority around, I am offended by this, I think it's incorrect in this instance to use the the phrase illegal immigrant, therefore you, Caitlin, or you, Shelley, should also not use that language. This idea of just because someone finds something offensive, regardless of the merits of whether or not that is offensive or not, to try and compel someone else to change their speech, that's where I have an issue. What do you think about that? Sure, I agree with you, but more than compelling someone to change their speech, it is a matter of framing the issue, right? And so what Andrew is saying is by saying someone is illegal, even even the way you just framed the issue, not going through the proper channels to come here. You and I have talked about this. There are no proper channels. There is no legal way for a Mexican person to immigrate unless they marry a United States citizen or um, have, you know, one of the sort of superstar visas that there are very few of. So there are no proper channels. And so that's why use of the word illegal sort of frames it in a way to make it sound like they could have done something differently if they wanted to come when they can't. Well, there are proper channels but I think your opinion is, and you may be right, maybe an issue for a different podcast if we go back and talk about immigration again, there are proper channels, marriage or visa lotteries, things like that. I think your there's position no, is, is there's that no there's no visa lottery, for example, enough. in Mexico. There's okay. No, there's no well, visa. I don't think anybody would debate that if you choose to come into this country, coming across the border, not through a port of entry, et cetera, I think it's okay to call you an illegal immigrant. That's just the nature of us being a a law and order kind of based society. Separately, I'm glad to hear that you agree that you don't like it when people try to prescribe certain language on others. Because I think that's what, as I was leaving the Andrew Romanoff conversation, that's what really bugged me about it. Not that Andrew had that opinion at all, but just trying to tell me as a free thinker what language I should be using. I don't really like that. Right. I, I'm the last person to criticize someone's language because I'm not as articulate as many people. So, yeah, and what, what uh, so do you... I don't have a problem with that. But, you know, I want to be clear, there are virtually no ways to legally immigrate other than what we just discussed and maybe asylum. And so, you know, people are coming because there's a supply of jobs that we are providing. And so that should be the focus as opposed to the focus being on did this person do something wrong, which you know, I don't think they did. What do you think about this idea of misgendering, which has become very popular, especially at college campuses, which tend to be ground zero for what I would call language police. Um, this idea of misgendering is when someone uses the wrong pronouns or preferred pronouns when referring to someone else. Do you think there should be punishment for people if they misgender someone? Absolutely not. Okay, good. Good. Then you and I are in agreement there because I found a couple of stories which I found amusing and terrifying at the same time. And as we look at this landscape of colleges and universities that I think are bending over backwards to compete with one another on being diverse and inclusive and all of those different things, places like University of Michigan and there was another college, a smaller college, it sounds like in Ohio, professor at the Shawnee University uh, was punished because he did not refer to a transgender student in using the pronouns that that student had requested. And in the University of Michigan example, uh, I don't know if it actually came to fruition, but last year they were proposing a policy that anyone, including students or staff, um, could be punished up and up into and including expulsion or termination if they didn't use the right pronouns, which to me seems crazy. Well, I hadn't heard that story, but my inclination is to to say no, no one should be punished for using certain language. None of us can ever get the right language all of the time. It's too much to expect. However, in that case, I don't know, maybe the professor already knew, maybe multiple times had been educated on how this person wants to be referred to. I think it's interesting to educate ourselves and to try to be open to learning and hearing what, you know, what people want to be called. Uh, In the case of a transgender person, if someone relates to being a woman, then they want to be considered a woman. To having distaste for that and therefore refusing to accept that about that person then I think that that's a different issue. It's not just language in that case. It might be um, that he was specifically denying. It could be that if he had been asked multiple times, 
and he was going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's a, that's a different issue. That's not accepting someone for who, you know, who they want to be and maybe, you know, discriminating against them as a result. So in that scenario, and you and I are both hypothesizing here, let's say that Shawnee University professor had been admonished several times prior, clearly knew that the student preferred female pronouns. I don't even know if I can say female anymore. That might be misgendering. In that scenario, do you think it's okay for him to be punished for his speech? That he can be compelled to, to speak a certain way? Well, I think in a university setting, they have rules about treating others with respect. You can't disparage someone because of their race or their religion. There are some limits to free speech on a college campus. And so if it's a discriminatory, then yes, I'm okay with a punishment taking place. Oh, interesting. Okay. I could not agree, disagree with you more on that piece. I can't think of any scenario where it's okay for any institution or the government to compel a private citizen on their speech. So for example, um, you think it would be okay for a professor to call a student the N-word? I don't think that's... And not o- be punished. I don't think that's okay, but I, are you equating that? Are you creating moral equivalency between that scenario and using the wrong pronouns? Well, you and I have had this discussion with LGBT issues. I want to include you know, non-discrimination against LGBT along with those other protected classes like race, religion, and political affiliation and such. And you're more hesitant to include that minority in, in those protections. And so, yes, I think we need to start including the LGBTQ community in our thought process when it comes to things that are uh, that are protected. I don't like anyone trying to compel someone else to speak a certain way, be it Andrew Romanoff in a casual conversation or a university or what have you. That said, in the example that you just gave, if there's a professor that is calling students the N-word or using another kind of academic example, let's say that that university has a very strict policy, I'm making this up, but once you know that a student or staff member has specific pronouns and you choose to disobey that, then that can result in termination. Like if that's a written policy, just like any other policy at a university or or a company, um, if you are voluntarily being employed by that employer, essentially, then you need to abide by those rules. So would they have the right to fire you? Yes, they would. The unknown here is whether or not that's a policy of Shawnee or if it's just an issue. I would almost guarantee that most universities have a some policy about non-discrimination uh, you know of minorities yeah and so it probably could fall into that yeah maybe maybe yeah. I think that's where the nuance is is misgendering again coming back to the the pronoun piece is that discriminatory or covered under those clauses who knows so and like I say I think um, we have to be open to being educated on that and and trying at least with that community okay Caitlin new topic On the front page of the newspapers today, the House has started an impeachment inquiry into President Trump. As of yesterday morning, before I read this news, I was one of the people on the left who did not, was not very interested in watching Congress go through impeachment proceedings with President Trump, was kind of ready to move on from the 2016 election issues and was not necessarily in favor of impeachment. When you and I interviewed Andrew Romanoff uh, the other day, he said that he was in in favor of the inquiry. And then in today's newspaper is the uh, reference to the transcript between President Trump and the Ukrainian president and whether that is cause for impeachment. So I wanted to ask you about it, if you've had a chance to look at that transcript of the phone call between President Trump and the Ukrainian president. At this point, I think it's definitely worth an impeachment inquiry. And I'm wondering if you can acknowledge that this behavior that President Trump has engaged in where he is offering United States assistance in exchange for an investigation into Joe Biden's son, whether you can acknowledge that that is inappropriate behavior for a United States president. 
Um, I think the timeline of this is very interesting. Uh, we are recording this on the 25th. Today is the day that the transcripts were released. The Democrats, led by Nancy Pelosi, actually made the impeachment investigation declaration yesterday prior to the transcript being released. But I've read the transcript, so I'm interested to hear from you, Shelley. You just mentioned that, do I think it's wrong for President Trump asking uh, the Ukrainian president to open an investigation uh, in exchange for foreign aid? He didn't do that in the transcript. Did you read something different? There's nothing in the transcript that um, talks about a quid pro quo or withholding military aid. To read it otherwise is sort of like saying when a mob boss has withheld something from you or mentioned your wife's health and then says, hey, you haven't been doing enough lately for me. Here's what I need. That's not a quid pro quo. I think that this transcript is clear that that's what happened. Interestingly, this phone call happened the day after uh, Robert Mueller testified uh, to Congress. And the, f- the following day, President Trump makes this phone call. Prior to that, his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, had been approaching the Ukrainian president about these same uh, favors that that Trump wanted to ask and had admitted that publicly. Well, the Ukrainian president said that he had reached out to Giuliani, correct? So the Ukrainian president in the transcript says that he initiated that contact with Giuliani. My understanding is it wasn't wasn't the reverse. I believe that that it's not disputed that Giuliani has been trying to reach out to the Ukraine on these same issues. Before the phone call, Trump freezes $400 million in aid to the Ukraine. That creates leverage for him to be able to ask the Ukrainian president for what he wants. And then in the phone call, uh, he says, you know, you really haven't been doing enough for us. Here's what I need. I need for the Ukraine to reopen its investigation. Uh, There was a corruption investigation in the Ukraine of a company that Biden's son sits on the board of. And also in the phone call, President Trump asks the Ukrainian president for information on the DNC server that was hacked by the Russians in the 2016 election, uh, because rumor has it that that server was in the Ukraine. Both of these issues are clearly political. They're clearly a, a personal favor that Trump is asking. They have to do with the upcoming election. I think that means they're improper and uh, that type of quid pro quo in relations with foreign governments um, is pretty unprecedented. The State Department uh, was completely left out of these conversations. Uh, That's usually the channels with which diplomacy takes place. What Trump is doing here is asking for foreign assistance for his 2020 election campaign, which to me is startling. This idea that this hasn't happened before is simply untrue. There's a letter that came out today as well from May 2018 um, from several senators, including uh, Robert Menendez, Dick Durbin, and Patrick Leahy, uh, again, dated last year, 2018, where they had reached out to the general prosecutor, Yuri Litsensko, um, official prosecutor of Ukraine, requesting his cooperation uh, in the Mueller investigation. So this idea that no one from Washington is ever reaching out outside of uh, approved diplomatic channels, I think is kind of a stretch. But that's not a good defense. When our kids do something wrong and we hear from them, oh, but everybody's doing it, mom. We never accept that as a defense. But is it wrong? I guess what I guess I'm if wondering Biden what's did wrong that, about that. If Biden did that, and by the way, I wouldn't be surprised if if that happened. And for those of you listeners on the left, please don't vote for Joe Biden. That's a sellout thing to do. We know that he's not the best candidate. If Joe Biden did that, that doesn't make it any less wrong. It would have been wrong for him to do it. And it's wrong for President Trump to do it. It it goes against the fabric of our democracy to be asking foreign governments for assistance in an election. I think it's uh, it's against United States interests. And I definitely think it's impeachable. Well, we'll see. I think it's great that Democrats are going down this path. I had to laugh at Nancy Pelosi's impeachment speech again yesterday before the transcript even came out. She said, quote, shortly thereafter, press reports began to break of a phone call by the president of the United States calling upon a foreign power to intervene in his election. This is a breach of his constitutional responsibilities. That's her quote. Uh, Very theatrical and dramatic, as Nancy Pelosi can often be. But if you read the transcript, I'm not sure that there's any there there. Where are you seeing that he's calling upon a foreign power, in this instance Ukraine, to intervene in his election? He says, first he withholds $400 million of aid before the phone call. And then he says, we want to help you, but you're not doing enough for us. Where does it say that? Quote me the language, please. 
I didn't see anything in there where he says you're not doing enough for us you have to do more he says I'd like to I'd like for you to do us a favor to find out what happened with the election and CrowdStrike, which was that third-party cybersecurity firm that was investigating the DNC server issue back in 2016. And then he does mention, you know, Biden and Biden's son and the issue of the prosecutor that was uh, fired by the previous Ukrainian administration. But I'm just not sure I see the smoking gun. I know Democrats do, but I don't know. President Trump says, we do a lot for the Ukraine. We spend a lot of effort and a lot of time. And then he goes on to say, I wouldn't say that it's reciprocal necessary because things are happening that are not good, but the United States has been very good to Ukraine. That sentence implies we're helping you and you're not helping us. And then he goes on to say what he wants. In his next quote, he says, I would like you to do us a favor because our country has been through a lot. Ukraine knows a lot about it. And then he goes on to reference the server that you just mentioned and goes on to mention uh, the investigation into the company that Biden's son worked for. So where's the high crime and misdemeanor that you think uh, links this to an impeachable offense? Quid pro quo, where you are asking, you are offering, in this case, aid. Again, not expressly here in the transcript. Not expressly, you're but you're with, between I am in the timeline. Uh, exactly. Okay. Just like when the mob boss says, uh, you know, I care I a lot it. about your wife's health. <laughs> I get it. But you're, you're making a connection there that there's no evidence of, right? Oh, I think there's plenty of evidence okay. of it. He somewhat randomly withholds $400 million of aid right before the phone call. Okay. Uh, so I think there's a clear connection there. We, he, he then later releases the aid. He says, you're not doing enough for us. And then he says, here's what we need. And both of the things that he asks for have nothing to do with United States interests in, in Ukraine and uh, formal diplomacy, they are purely favors, and he even calls it a favor in his language, that have to do with the upcoming election. But how and, specifically? I, I really, like, I legitimately don't understand that. How is uh, reopening the Biden conversation, which I would think, and I appreciate that this is a partisan issue, but if there was corruption between you know, Joe Biden under the Obama administration and his son Hunter getting this very cushy board seat on a Ukrainian gas company. I appreciate what you said before, two wrongs don't make a right. But if there was some sort of foreign corruption there, I think that deserves exposure. I agree. But I'm still not connecting the dots. Maybe I'm being really dense here. What in this transcript are you interpreting to see or to say rather that Ukraine is going to somehow help Trump in the election? Well, the inquiry, the prosecutor's inquiry in Ukraine into that company was over and didn't go anywhere. What President Trump is asking for here is, you know, a different prosecutor and to sort of reopen this. But to what end? Um, Just to get Biden out of the race? I mean, Biden's not going to be the nominee anyway. To show that there was some corruption with Biden's son in the Ukraine. But what's what's the benefit there to Trump? Because the likelihood of Biden being the nominee, I think, is growing slimmer and slimmer. I hope with every so because I'm not a. I hope so because I'm not a fan of Biden's. But uh, I mean, he, I guess he has you, been leading the polls. Well, I agree. And when when this conversation took place, Biden was very much leading the polls, and it looked to Trump like this is who he he would be running against. So to to ask the Ukraine to reopen an investigation to dig up some dirt on his political opponent's son, which I agree, the dirt, by the way, would be um, pretty scandalous. If that pretty occurred. scandalous. And in my view, should, if true, exclude Biden from having a rightful place in our political system. But what he's asking for here is look into this, reopen this, launch a new investigation, and uh, help me out. He even calls it a favor. It's purely a political favor in exchange for foreign aid, and it's a terrible misuse of the office of presidency. Well, I hope the Democrats move forward with impeachment. I think it'll be a very interesting uh, political theater and circus over the next 14 months before the election. Uh, I hope they move forward because I, I don't think I don't think your average American uh, is going to put much stock in what is now a second impeachment effort on the part of the Dems, especially after their failed Russian collusion story for two years that, that turned out to be nothing. And I think it's interesting, too, a lot on the left, maybe not you, Shelley, some are really celebrating that, oh my gosh, we've opened up these official hearings. 
There's nothing really changed. Nancy Pelosi is expressly not calling for a vote on this, which I think is very disingenuous of her. If she really thinks that this Ukrainian transcript is a smoking gun and others in the Democrat leadership, uh, like Adam Schiff, who's always very vocal about these things, I don't know why they're not doing their duty in calling a vote. And maybe you agree with that, but I think it I do agree with feels that. like I... political posturing, but not really any progress. Nothing really is happening. I do agree with that. I think the younger Democrats in Congress have been pushing for impeachment for some time. And uh, this transcript just makes it harder to deny that what President Trump da- did was impeachable. And so... I think the more establishment Democrats like Nancy Pelosi need to get on board and be aggressive here because this is not a precedent that we want to, we don't want to approve this. We don't want presidents and members of Congress and Joe Biden. We don't want anyone to be acting like this in the international realm as, as a representative of the United States. I think it's, yeah, I think it hurts our democracy. And by the way, he has not yet released the whistleblower complaint itself. Even Republicans in the Senate have asked for that to be released. But why do we and need so the whistleblower? We may see that tomorrow, perhaps. No, Trump's already authorized that that's going to come out. But I guess I don't, I'm not clear why do we need the whistleblower because the whistleblower was not in the room during the phone call and heard the information like through hearsay. I don't know what that complaint says. I'm curious to read it. Though. Yeah, I'm not sure what we're going to learn from the whistleblower that we don't already know from the transcript because it was just let's hearsay. see. Yeah, let's no, see. Trump's already said he'll he'll release it, so I think that's interesting. Next topic. 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg has been in the news recently for a variety of things, including her sale across the Atlantic to protest climate change, as well as her most recent speech in front of the UN Climate Summit just a few days ago, where she admonished basically everyone in the world that they've stolen her dreams in her childhood, and she included several how-dare-yous throughout her speech for good measure. You and I disagree on climate change. I'm not looking to rehash that here. However, I'm interested to know your thoughts about a 16-year-old emerging as arguably one of the leading advocates for this issue in front of a global audience. Personally, I have concerns about any teenager being put in that role, but especially one who has some social and emotional challenges like Greta, who publicly has disclosed, or her parents have disclosed, that she's been diagnosed with autism and ADHD. I disagree with Greta on the environmental issues, but more importantly, as a parent, I just kind of feel badly for her. Do you think it's okay to elevate kids or teens to these types of positions that have such global attention and scrutiny? Yes, I think that Greta Thunberg is a 16-year-old that is mature, more like an 18-year-old at least. Uh, I don't fault her parents for allowing her to do this work. I don't fault the UN for allowing her to speak. And I don't fault the public for listening to her and admiring her activism. I do fault the media for portraying her a little bit as sort of based on her disability. And your question implies this a little bit for portraying her as sort of pitiful or sympathetic, as Fox News put it, mentally ill, which is incorrect. The media has been portraying disabled people with sympathy for years, and I don't think it's appropriate. I think it's too bad they've done that with Greta Thunberg. Um, I think the disconnect here, actually, I know you don't want to talk about climate change, but I think that actually is the disconnect here. You're skeptical of the science where Greta Thunberg's speech goes on to say, this science has been around for 30 years. There's nothing to debate. I think she's right. And so I think what she's saying here, the quotes that you just mentioned, she's saying, it is wrong not to act on this science. And I think that's why conservatives are asking the question that you asked today, because we have this, you know, young person um, who's getting a lot of attention, who really uh, makes some really good points. Yeah, I, I don't care about the fact that Greta Thunberg is getting attention. I love it just as much as I love that AOC gets attention. Of course, I disagree with Greta on the issues just as I disagree with AOC. I disagree with her. I'm not, I'm, I don't, I mean, I'm not trying to hide that at all. But as a parent, I can't imagine having my child on a global stage being subjected to this scrutiny and clearly is passionate about what she believes. I don't doubt that she believes what she's saying. I personally disagree with her. I think she's completely wrong. But it's just this phenomena of, you know, having a child represent this movement and and as a parent putting your child 
in front of such scrutiny on such a global platform on an issue that is so important for so many people. I, I don't quite get that. I just don't know if I'd make that same choice myself with my kids. But it sounds like you would be fine with that for your kids. I mean, if my child really wanted to do that, and I think what we have here is a young person who's extremely passionate about the issues, clearly wants to do this, and her disability shouldn't be at all a reason why she shouldn't. In fact, you know, she calls it a superpower. In her case, it might be a reason why she should be doing this. Because of her disability, she tends to say things in a way that she, she doesn't care what anyone thinks, right? That's one of the things that Asperger's does is you don't always read social cues. So does she have Asperger's or autism? Or are they all on the same scale um, or a spectrum? I, mean. I think she has Asperger's and I don't, I don't know the details uh, yeah, know of, the of where there. she is on the spectrum. Um, but I think that that comes through when, like in the quotes that you read of hers, she speaks in a way to leaders that is not looking out to comfort them or to to sort of cushion anything she says. She just says it like it is. And that's not only part of her disability, it's what makes her such a um, strong and great activist. And, you know, if that's what she wants to do, I think she's old enough to do that. And she's having a, a positive effect, I think, on the issue. Sure. And I, I want to be crystal clear. I'm in no way criticizing her because of any disability she, she may have. Um, I just mentioned that because I think it's an interesting aspect of her journey and, and, and potentially for her kudos, right, that she's able to overcome some of those what I understand to be social anxieties or things like that to be able to be up on front of a, you know, an audience like the UN. But doesn't that just answer your own question then? If it's kudos to her, then isn't it also kudos to her parents for letting but her do I, it? That's what I'm wondering. Do you think she's writing her speeches? Do you think she's really initiating this? Or do you think she's getting pushed by her parents or her family? I don't know, but I have no reason. There's been no reason to think that it's anyone but her. Okay. Yeah. Well, you and I just differ. I, I, I don't know that I would ever want my child, regardless of how passionate they are or well-spoken on a particular issue. Uh, I don't know that as a parent I would want a 16-year-old on a global stage like that, but not my choice to make. Even to kid. change the world? Well, that's where you, we could go into a whole different episode. I think she's completely wrong on this, and, and that's fine. I know so, wait, that but, you but and I remember, disagree. Remember, her point is that it's not her that's right or wrong. The science has been there for 30 years. It's it's we adults who are wrong by not acting on this science. I know that's what she believes. And, I, and it's true. And I couldn't disagree more. Okay, what's up next? Um, so also in the news the last couple of days, although kind of buried, I don't think a lot of our listeners probably saw it, the Federal Reserve the other day infused $75 billion of cash into the system in order to avoid, help avoid a market crash. And then... I think it was just yesterday they announced that they would infuse up to $75 billion per day every day through at least mid-October. This is a ton of money and this hasn't happened since the 2008 crisis. So I was surprised at how little news it's gotten. Uh, I don't know, Caitlin, if there's a red view or blue view on this, although one question could be if, if President Trump's economy is so good, why is the bank doing this? Um, are we just postponing a crash? But my bigger problem with this is the effect it has on inflation and making all of our dollars worth less over time. It affects our kids, our grandkids. So I, I have some real concern that that uh, propping up the economy like this is maybe not the right thing to do. Yeah, I don't know much about that issue. I tried to read a couple articles in the Financial Times, but it's certainly not something that I understand well enough to speak to. Maybe some of our listeners will be interested to research a bit more on their end. Okay, Shelley, my last topic for today's lightning round is gun violence and gun control. It's always an important and controversial topic, including when you and I talk about it. And it's hard to talk about it without talking about the NRA. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors, essentially their city council, was in the news earlier this month because they decided to declare the NRA a, quote, domestic terrorist organization. The Board of Supervisors claims, among other things, that the NRA incites gun owners to acts of violence spreads propaganda and promotes extremist positions. The stated goal of the city's declaration is to limit entities who do business with the city of San Francisco from also doing business with the NRA. Shelley, do you agree that the NRA is a domestic terrorist organization? 
I don't know enough about the NRA's finances, which are private in terms of who gives them money to conclude as to whether they're a domestic terrorist organization. Interestingly, I read a poll that says that 43% of Americans do think that the NRA is a terrorist organization. So maybe the San Francisco board, while this is a pretty bold move, isn't entirely off base with its public opinion, uh, especially in its jurisdiction in San Francisco, which we know is is more of a left-leaning city. I know that after the resolution was passed, the NRA sued the board uh, for First Amendment violation, so it'll be interesting to hear how the courts rule on that. I think that's an interesting issue. But what the NRA does is it calls itself a self-defense organization, when really it spends a ton of money on members of Congress and its goal is to prevent any gun control legislation from passing. As Andrew Romanoff pointed out to us the other night in our episode with him, while the NRA will say on its website, for example, that it supports red flag laws like the one you and I debated here in Colorado, it in practice uh, advocates for no no legislation to be passed whatsoever and it contributes money to Congress to, to further that agenda. So I think as I understand it, the NRA receives a lot of money from gun manufacturers. Like I say, that a lot of that is private. We don't know much about their finances. Uh, we do know there's been some corruption recently, but we don't know a lot about where they get their funding. What you do see is it is true that they spread propaganda and promote extremist positions. They're out there furthering this agenda that indirectly results in, I think, results in the gun violence problem we have in the United States, 100 Americans dying from gun violence every day and the second leading cause of death amongst children in the United States. So uh, in part, this is because the NRA is buying our Congress. And so sort of theoretically, that makes them maybe, depending on where they're getting their funding, a little bit like certain terrorist organizations who are indirectly financing terrorism. Wow, 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 wow. So much there. So I've never heard the NRA refer to themselves as primarily a self-defense organization. I'm not sure where you're getting that. They've always called themselves a a civil rights organization, obviously defending the Second Amendment. So I I don't know if self-defense is a part of that, but I don't know that there's ever been their primary uh, stated objective. Isn't their main main position that uh, everyone should be allowed to have guns in part to be able to of course, self, as part of the second, of course, as part of the Second Amendment, um, but I've never Second heard Amendment, them. but self-defense is what I've heard you say many times about the uh, about uh, that agenda. Hmm. I've never defined the NRA as a to own a gun, to own a gun in order to defend. Sure, that's oneself. a key element of the of the Second Amendment, of course, but that's not how the NRA defines themselves. So I just want to be clear there. Secondly, I don't know that of, that's a key element of the Second Amendment. <laughs> you don't think a key element of the Second Amendment is your ability to defend yourself? The Second Amendment has to do with uh, having a militia to protect protect against the federal government. But uh... Um, second piece on the funding, majority of NRA funding comes from members like me. I'm an NRA member. Um, So does that change your perspective on them being a domestic terrorist organization? Are you sure about that? Because my understanding is their funding is not public information. It's not public, but when it's been um, investigated and reported, um, I'm just looking at a CNN money article. It talks about the majority of the funding. It doesn't give a percentage, so that could be 50.1%. Uh, I acknowledge that, but it says the majority of it comes from membership dues. Um, there are also program fees. I'm not sure what that means. And then other contributions, which could theoretically be uh, gun manufacturers, what have you. But it, this says, for what it's worth, that it's mostly membership dues. I do want to ask, though, because you just said that you definitely agree that they spread propaganda and an extremist extremist message. Can you give me an example of that? Like, what's something specifically that the NRA has communicated to their members that you consider propaganda or extremist? They, on one hand, will say that they support reasonable gun legislation to keep guns out of the hands of violent criminals. Uh, and then in practice, they work very hard against every single piece of gun legislation that comes up that is proposed. And so I think that's extremist. I think it's an extreme position not to support a single red flag law in the United States. When we, we've, we've had this debate and you know that I think that red flag laws are designed to prevent uh, both suicide and mass shootings and people who are uh, an imminent threat from having a gun. They don't support universal background checks, which you know, as we discussed in our last episode, a lot of people, 90% of Americans think is 
uh, is a good idea. They fight so hard against every single piece of gun control legislation that 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 in in of itself is extremist in my view. So I don't support universal background checks. I don't support red flag legislation, at least as it's written right now in our state and others. I don't support things like high capacity magazine magazine bans. So am I an extremist? I think you're pretty far right on this issue. Wow. Interesting. On, on the gun control issue. Would, I you, th- would you call me a domestic terrorist then? Absolutely not. Do you think it's okay for San Francisco to call me a domestic terrorist? Nope. I, I think your perspective, respectfully, on what a, quote, reasonable gun law is, regardless of polls, I don't really care if 90% of people agree, what have you. I think your perspective on this is much more further to the left and much more progressive than your average American. I really do. And you and I just disagree on I don't that. Think and so. we'll see what happens in the election next year. That's we'll see right. who's, who's right. I, I don't think so. I think an overwhelming majority of Americans support the type of legislation that I support. And I think it's specifically the NRA um, and other contributions to Congress and immense political pressure that have prevented those types of pieces of legislation from passing. But what's an example where the NRA donated to a politician, where that politician, you believe, changed their mind on gun legislation because of influence from the NRA? Because my point is, NRA is donating to Republican candidates, right? Because conservatives generally align with their viewpoint. That's that's not illegal. That's why NRA is not giving money to Nancy Pelosi or Elizabeth Warren for obvious reasons. They this, are. This the, idea, NRA also, the NRA also contributes to Democrats. Perhaps not in the same amounts, right? But I guess the, the theory that I always hear, or I think I'm hearing from you, is that we would have much stronger gun legislation. And tell me if I'm wrong. It seems to me that the theory you're positing is that we would have have much stronger gun legislation on the books today if the NRA didn't exist. Yes. So, which begs the question. That is definitely true. We would have much stronger gun legislation on the books today if the NRA was not uh, paying Congress. So what gun legislation did not pass, in your view, because of NRA influence? Well, the assault weapons ban that was in effect for 10 years and then Which was, expired and then and never then got reinstated, exactly. even during the Obama administration when there was a complete Democrat leadership across like both Like I say, the Congress. NRA has had tremendous effect on Democrats as well. So the I just NRA, want to be clear, you're blaming the, the fact that the assault weapons ban that initiated in 1994 that expired, you're saying the NRA was to blame for that even though it was democratically run House and Senate? The NRA is to blame for a lack of an assault weapon ban. We should have had an assault weapon ban before 1994. Okay. We should have one after 2004. Okay. Uh, we should have one right now. But and you think NRA, NRA influenced is, enough Democrats during Obama's administration that they didn't pass it? I mean, even in the last um, election... I mean, that's quite the theory, I think. In the last election, that's not quite the theory. Even in the last election and the election before that, Democrats were not uh, espousing what they are today with respect to gun control. Democrats were also very concerned with this as a political issue and very concerned that to advocate for uh, serious gun control was political suicide. And only now you're seeing a little bit of bravery on this issue. And I think it's in part because of we've reached our tolerance in terms of mass shootings and how many children we're going to watch die. And uh, there's more of a movement against the influence that the NRA has. But for years, both sides of the aisle, the NRA is making a lot of contributions and and, and other gun lobby uh, organizations are very powerful in, in Congress. And yes, that's why we don't have gun control legislation. Those types of organizations, both money and what I think are extreme positions that they're espousing. And just so I understand you clearly as well, you, although indirectly, you attribute deaths from mass shootings as an example back to the NRA. Although indirectly, yes. So you think if the NRA didn't exist, put another way, if the NRA didn't exist, we wouldn't have had mass shootings over the last 40, 50 years. I think that if contributions to Congress and and the resulting political pressure to oppose every single piece of gun control legislation that is contemplated uh, if those if if that didn't exist that we would have passed reasonable gun control legislation a long time ago i think we're late you've heard me say that i think congress has failed in its basic duty to protect us the nra is a part of that yes and do you agree with san francisco that the nra is inciting gun owners for acts of violence 
I'm not sure about that. I uh, sometimes, you know, I, I think President Trump has incited uh, some behavior that may have led to the El Paso shooting, for example. Um, this idea that uh, immigrants are to be vilified and and that there's an invasion happening. Those those same type of ideas were used by the shooter in El Paso and um, and other white supremacists. But no, I've never come across any information that suggests that the NRA has done that. Who knew NRA had so much power? I just think it's fascinating to me that uh, the NRA is so vilified, even though it's made up of millions of law-abiding gun owners. There's never been a single mass shooter that I'm aware of, maybe you know differently, that was an NRA member. In fact, we've seen instances where NRA members have come in to help prevent mass shootings and save lives, like in the case of Sutherland Springs in Texas uh, last year or two years ago. I think it's a real stretch to even indirectly attribute any gun deaths back to the NRA. Uh, law-abiding NRA gun owners are not the ones committing crimes. We've talked about that multiple that's times. That's true, but that's not the issue. The issue is whether the financing, again, where they get their money from, how they spend it, and whether that is shaping our legislation on this issue. And then, as you know, you and I disagree on whether that legislation would prevent gun deaths. I think it would. Yeah, I just I strongly disagree with you, especially as we look back at the Obama administration. They clearly had the opportunity to do something, as you call it, brave with the assault weapons ban. They chose not to. I think making that connection back to the NRA's influence among Democratic politicians is really a stretch um, and frankly doesn't say very much for Democratic leadership, many of whom are still in office today. That's why I'm not a Democrat, Caitlin. Well, I, <laughs> I realize that that's true according to the Secretary of State records, but I, I think for all intents and purposes, you generally are uh, well, certainly they, liberal, they, maybe not Democrat. Historically, the Democrats have also failed on this issue. I am hoping that with the movement toward more progressive politics in this next election, uh, and with younger people coming into office, I'm hopeful that uh, the Democrats will be braver on these issues. Um, next topic, Caitlin. We've talked about discrimination in the past on this podcast. Uh, you've claimed that liberals think everything is racist, and I've claimed that not admitting anything is racist means conservatives are perpetuating racism. We've had that discussion in the context of African Americans in the criminal justice system. Uh, we've had an episode on Trump's statement, go back to your country to four American congresswomen. And recently when we talked with Casper Stockham, candidate for Congress, who is a guest on the show, we discussed discrimination against the LGBT community and public accommodations. And again today, um, and I argued that much like the civil rights movement, when people argue that the races should be separated for religious reasons, some people now use their religious beliefs to discriminate against LGBT people. I've also argued that Trump's leadership has taken us in the wrong direction on these issues. There was a recent story out of Mississippi that I thought was evidence of that wrong direction. An event hall had booked a wedding, then canceled the booking when they learned that the groom was black and the bride white. The event hall manager, in a video that has gone viral, said to the family, we don't do gay weddings or mixed race because of our Christian race. I mean, our Christian belief. Caitlin, do you think the event hall was wrong? either morally or legally or both, and should be required to host such a wedding. Well, first, I just want to correct the record on on what I think around racism. I definitely believe that since Trump's election that many liberals have been quick to label anything that he and his administration does as racist, even when there is, at least in my opinion, some legitimate debate to be had as to whether it truly is or not. I also strongly disagree with your assessment that conservatives refuse to condemn real racism when it occurs. I, I don't think that's fair, and I just think that that's incorrect. So I wanted to correct the record on a couple things there. Just so I'm clear, you're connecting President Trump to this situation of potential racial discrimination at an event venue in Boonville, Mississippi. Although I am, that's not the question I'm asking you. I'm just asking you if you think the event hall was wrong, whether morally, legally, uh, or both, and I understand. should be required to host this wedding. And I promise you I will answer that question in one second, but you said that you think that Trump's leadership on this has been going in the wrong direction, and evidence of yes. that wrong direction is Mississippi. So I think that I'm his, just trying to connect the dots between President Trump and Boonville, Mississippi. As you know, I think President Trump is racist. We've had episodes on this. I think when he said go back to your country was 
one of the most basic examples of racism of his and when he is constantly promoting that on tv and on tweets and in a public forum i do think it gives people who listen to him who might be racist more of a sort of feeling okay about saying these things i think like i say that's what happened with the el paso shooter i think possibly that he influenced this woman who's on this video that i'm asking you about was this woman on the video a republican who knows? I think so. Well, you're assuming that because she, you think she's racist. No, I'm assuming that based on her, what she says. Which you think is racist and therefore you think she's a Trump supporter. I don't, I, okay. I'm just curious. No, it's interesting to say that I, like you I think say, she's, I don't think, I don't know. I'm just calling and, you out that I think because this woman said something that is arguably racist and I will answer your question right now, that you assume that she's a Trump supporter. I find that very, uh, very interesting that you say that. Okay, so based so you on do this think she's issue, racist. Based on this issue, I don't think she that it was the right thing to do for that event manager. And if it's illegal based on federal law, which which protects against discrimination in public accommodation, then it's up to the couple to choose their next steps. I mean, that venue subsequently apologized to the couple. Uh, I don't know if it was that woman or the owners of the venue or what, uh, invited them back to host their wedding, which of course is the right thing to do. I mean, if I was that couple, I wouldn't do that. But, you know, I don't think it's the right thing to do. No, of course not. And you agree that it was racist? I agree that making a statement that blacks and whites shouldn't marry, yeah, of course. So that's, I I think it's important um, for conservatives to acknowledge racism when it happens. That's why I ask it. Because when we've had these conversations in the past, and what what you see with President Trump is, and other conservatives in the news, is not acknowledging when a racist event happens. And to me, that perpetuates the problem. But give me an example other than your your position on the go back to where you came from squad, because I don't think that was racist. You do. I think that could be xenophobic. It could be bigoted. I don't think it's racist per se. Give me another example where you think a Republican other than Trump has not condemned racism. You and I had the episode on, uh, we, we discussed the Phoenix Barbie doll incident, for example. And a lot of conservatives will say, including you, that they had no reason to believe that that was a race, racially motivated Based incident. on the video and the data available. Correct. Right. There was and no so, evidence that there was racism. So a lot of times when we have these conversations, until just now, I've that's the first time I've heard you acknowledge that something was racist. Really? Yes. That's not true. We talked about that with Steve King in that episode. I acknowledge that what he said is racist. The difference is what you consider racist is not necessarily what I consider racist. Right. That situation with the Phoenix Barbie doll, which we don't need to rehash entirely, you made the assessment based on the video that that officer was behaving in a racial manner towards that couple. The reality is there was no evidence. He wasn't using any racial slurs. He There was no history of that officer, at least that I'm aware of that's come out that he's acted with a racial bias before, but you immediately assumed that there was racism because there. Because you can tell from the video that you that can racism. tell. You are you are inferring based on your interpretation of that video. That doesn't necessarily mean that it is racist. You right. believe it is, right. but, but I don't necessarily agree. So but that's, to have that's the that, challenge. But to have that to require someone, for example, to use a racial slur to find racism just fails to acknowledge racism in a lot of uh, other other situations. I'm not saying we have to require someone to and use a racial slur. And that perpetuates it when, when we can't acknowledge that something is racist. So I'm glad to hear that you acknowledge that the event hall not hosting this wedding was racist. I think they have the right to choose to not host a wedding as a private company. But to say to someone, and I'm paraphrasing, we don't believe blacks and whites should get married. That's just stupid thinking. Racist or otherwise, that's stupid thinking. But wait, wait, you but think I am that they have the to- right to do it? Like, a legal right or well in Mississippi my understanding is that the law actually does protect let me look at this for a minute it's a state-by-state issue right and I'm not saying I agree with this but in Mississippi their law around businesses allowing businesses to refuse services my understanding is that it does not contemplate race or ethnicity now I know federal law does so I'm not sure how that all works Mississippi was in hot water a couple of years ago as well because they also allow businesses to review services to LGBTQ people, which I know is a big issue for you. I mean, I don't think it's the right thing to do. But again, if there's legal remedies, hopefully that couple will pursue those. So you're not sure if it's legally wrong, but you think it's morally wrong. Correct. But I'm upset that yeah, you I mean, think the, that the I federal... never call out racism. That's actually really upsetting to me because that 
makes the assumption that I'm okay with racism. I'm not. The difference no, is it doesn't. No, you it doesn't. and I disagree on what racism is. Exactly. That's exactly right. So my only and problem I, you, with and that... I and my my opinion is I love you, Shelley, but you're not the arbiter on everything that's racist. And likewise, I'm not the arbiter of what's racist or not. I either. totally agree, and I and I respect that we disagree on which things are racist, and there's got to be room for disagreement there. My problem with the bigger issue is when conservatives deny that almost anything is racist, what it does is it fails to acknowledge racism in these uh, subtle examples where maybe there isn't a slur used, as you point out with the Phoenix Barbie doll incident. It fails to acknowledge racism in a lot of those incidents, which in my view, perpetuates racism when we're failing to acknowledge it. I know, but you just said the same thing that I really have issue with. Conservatives refuse to acknowledge when racism occurs. That is just completely incorrect. I think it's correct. Gosh, give me an example of that, really. Like, I legitimately want a non-Trump example where a conservative has been faced with an explicitly racist situation, like Steve King in Iowa, or we refuse, you know, we're not going to marry you because it's a black-white interracial marriage. You and I talked about the Steve King example. That he was denounced resoundingly by Republican leadership. He was removed com- from committees as he should have been. I and thought when we talked about that incident with Steve King that your position was that you didn't think what he said was racist because the example your position you- was that when he said, you know, that European civilization contributed more or whatever, Correct. I forget the exact quote, that what that is talking about is cultural contributions and not a race correct and i stand by that that specific example from steve king i don't particularly so, find so most of everything we've talked about however we don't agree on this issue including the you know president trump's we haven't found a lot of incidents where we both think it's racist that's why i say i'm but uh, you're making this broad statement that conservatives not just trump conservatives rarely slash never denounce racism when it's when it's explicit i would love an example maybe of that. yeah, that's too broad of a statement to make that's too broad of a statement to make. Can you even just give me one example? We had this discussion about the go back to your own country comment, which I still don't understand how that can not be viewed as racist. Yeah, and I don't see how that can be viewed as racist. But right. I already said, like, aside from that, which we've talked about, and aside from So Steve we've talked King, about several of these little issues. So maybe we've talked there's... about two examples. And based on that, you're saying conservatives never denounce well, racism. Well, it sounds like we've talked about more than two, right? Just in this conversation, we've talked about go back to your own country, Steve King's comments about European civilization being superior, the Phoenix Barbie doll incident, probably we will talk about other incidents of uh, police brutality. We've wanted to do an episode on that. I think there's probably a lot of examples where I'm going to think that something is racist and, you know, you might not. And that's okay, like I say, but, you know, your position on that is too many things are racist <laughs> you know you said to me right, once, as illustrated by I this think, conversation now and I still think, think that everything's racist Shelley and my my response to that is we have to acknowledge racism where it exists otherwise it perpetuates it and so that's why I think it's important to acknowledge it in these I did want to go back though on this Mississippi case because you asked me a question around do I think it was okay for this venue ultimately to refuse to perform a wedding And I'm interested in your legal expertise. So similar to our discussion a couple episodes back about the Masterpiece Bakery, uh, for listeners that may not be familiar, Masterpiece Bakery is a bake shop here in the Denver metro area. They've been in the news multiple times over the last couple of years, including with a Supreme Court case, because the owner of that cake shop is a uh, strong Christian and refused to create a custom wedding cake for a gay couple. They brought him to court, and if you're interested, you can read more about it online. In the same vein of Masterpiece Bakery, I'd be interested to know the legal nuances of this case in Mississippi. So, for example, specifically, is an events venue, if they were refusing that biracial couple access into the venue, that to me is clear discrimination. But what about, so access into the facility, I mean, but what about performing a wedding? Is a wedding considered public accommodation under the law? I think so. Just like baking a custom cake? In your view, that those things are public accommodation? Absolutely. I think so. And I think that's... Based on what law, though? Help me understand the, the legal piece of it. Well, I know you a believe public, it, a public accommodation is access to a hotel or a restaurant or, I think, medical, medical treatment. Uh, in this case, a public accommodation is an event hall hosting a wedding. Very clearly to me. There's no... I I can't imagine a a reason why that wouldn't be a public accommodation. 
in your view, having an event hall and one of the services that you are willing to perform as a private enterprise is a wedding. To you, there's no difference between allowing a biracial couple to come into your facility and actually performing a service for them. To you, legally, that's the same. Of course, it's an event hall. They asked, the, the biracial couple asked for an event to be held for them. The same way, that's that's their business, is hosting events, hosting weddings. So they denied their business, hosting a wedding, having an event to a biracial couple because they're biracial. It's no different than, you know, when hotels or, or restaurants were saying, this dining hall is for white people and you're going to have to eat somewhere else or you're going to have to eat over here in this other place. They would have argued, well, we don't have to serve the same, have the same dining hall. We don't have to have the same chandelier, the same napkins, the same uh, food service for blacks and whites. It's our private decision and you know we're not denying their entry. We just are saying they can't sit in this dining hall. It's the exact same thing. It's it's racist. It's it's an abomination and that's absolutely a public accommodation for an event hall. And and that is federally that's illegal federally. That's unconstitutional to have denied that uh, wedding from taking place in that event. Okay, got it. Well, I think that's it for us today, Shelley. Thanks, listeners, for listening to Red View, Blue View. Um, as always, we appreciate you following us on social media at Facebook and Instagram. You can find us if you just search for Red View, Blue View. You'll find us there. We'd love to interact with you on those platforms, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you.